listener, Rachel Zucker here. You're listening to episode 113 of Commonplace. I have a lovely treat for you, what podcasters call a feed drop. The last time you heard from me was episode 111, the confessional episode. In that episode, I recorded a conversation with my good friend, writer, photographer, and podcaster, Mike Sakasagawa. I mentioned then that we'd be running an episode of Mike's podcast, Keep the Channel Open, on Commonplace. And here we are. After a short update on what's going on with me and with Commonplace, you'll hear episode 143 of Keep the Channel Open, a totally fabulous conversation between writer Nana Kwame Ajebranya and Mike Sakasagawa. I love this conversation in which Mike and Nana talk about Nana's debut novel, Chain Gang All-Stars. They also talk about satire, the seductive nature of success, and much more. I know you'll enjoy this conversation, and I hope you'll follow Mike and keep the channel open on social media and check out Mike's other 142 terrific episodes of Keep the Channel Open and his other podcast, Likewise Fiction. So how am I doing? In some ways, never better. I'm in Scarborough, Maine for the rest of the summer, and I just love it here. I love the ocean. I love this break from New York City. I'm cooking and reading and teaching online, loving teaching online. And I'm almost afraid to say it out loud. I'm writing again. I'm also needing to be slower and quieter than usual. I'm mourning the death of my friend Lila Margulies. I'm brought low by the terrible news of Saskia Hamilton's death and by the serious illnesses and losses of my close friends. For the most part, I've tried to be off social media this summer, try to stay away from the news as much as possible. What news does leak through is unremittingly terrible and terrifying. I don't know whether it's my age or stage of life or maybe the effects of the social chaos caused by the pandemic, but I find myself in the midst of a reckoning of sorts with almost all my close relationships. And it's painful. And I'm still feeling the deep, deep pain of the heartbreak of my breakup with Mr. Mann. I'm also still processing and integrating the, let's just call it unpleasant romantic encounter with Seattle guy and the profound experience of my seven day silent retreat in April at Spirit Rock. I don't know whether it's karma, luck, misaligned stars, but my online dating life has been going absurdly badly lately. I think I need to take a break. It just feels like I'm treading water in like a Bermuda triangle of man babies and ghosters and catfishers. And commonplace? Um, well... Valentine Conady and Langa Chinyoka have both moved on to other adventures, and both are so missed and, of course, entirely unreplaceable. 
I've decided for right now not to hire a new part-time producer and social media person. So it's really just me and Christine LaRusso. And I'm just too scattered right now between parenting and writing and teaching and slowly setting up the commonplace school and trying to do all of these things at a human and humane pace. I'm too scattered to be able to properly hire a full team. Honestly, I also, I don't know exactly which direction the podcast is moving in. I can say for sure that it's not going away. I have a bottleneck of already recorded incredible episodes. I've got one more episode hosted by Valentine Conady. This one's with Moheb Solomon. I've got a conversation hosted by Isaac Ginsburg Miller with Sharif Shanahan and Safia and Hillo. I've got a conversation between me and choreographer Hope Moore that I recorded back in April. A conversation I recorded uh, with Laurel Snyder a few months ago. A reading I recorded with Kate Marvin, R.A. Villanueva, Lynn Shu, and myself, uh, and was hosted by, in Bryant Park by Jason Schneiderman. I've got a reading and a conversation with Fred Moten and Ronaldo Wilson. I mean, the riches. So not to mention, I've also got three more episodes of my Poetics of Wrongness lectures. And for the next one that I'm going to release, which is about the ethics of representing real people in art, I'm doing several things I've never done before on Commonplace. And it's pretty labor intensive, but I am so excited to share the results with you. I've also got many other conversations planned and scheduled. So Commonplace is not going anywhere. We're just moving a little bit slowly. Also, with the help of poet Lee Sugar, Commonplace is working to catch up on the important work of offering transcriptions for all our back episodes. As always, you can follow Commonplace on social media, although, as I said, we're not posting too much, but we do post at least once per episode. Also, on our website, commonpodcast.com, you can sign up for our per-episode newsletter, which contains the most up-to-date news about the podcast and new Commonplace School classes. I've just announced the launch of Reading with Rachel, a 12-month, one-book-a-month online reading and making group. The group starts next month in September. There are two engagement levels, one for folks who just want to read and listen, and the other for folks who want to read, listen, and also make things in response to our shared texts. You can sign up for one session if a particular book strikes your interest. You can buy a six-pack, or you can join us for the 12-full-year package of being together. And there are all sorts of early bird discounts and pricing levels, and as always, one of the core tenets of the Commonplace School for Embodied Poetics is that no one will be turned away for lack of funds. I'll include the sign-up and information sheet to Reading with Rachel in the show notes, as well as on the Commonplace website and the newsletter. I'll also say more about the school and the direction of the podcast in the next few episodes.
Until then, I wish you ease and rest and engagement and adventure. I hope you enjoyed this conversation between Mike Sakasagawa and Nana Kwame Ajebrenya as much as I did. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Hello, and welcome to Keep the Channel Open, a podcast featuring conversations about art, literature, and creativity. My name is Mike Sakasagawa, and this is episode 143. Today's guest is Nana Kwame Ajebrenya. Hey folks, welcome to the show. On today's episode, I'm joined by author Nana Kwame Ajebrenya for a conversation about his novel Chain Gang All-Stars. Nana Kwame Ajebrenya is the New York Times bestselling author of Friday Black. His work has appeared in the New York Times Book Review, Esquire, the Paris Review, and elsewhere. He was a National Book Foundation's 5 Under 35 honoree, the winner of the Penn Jean Stein Book Award and the Sorian Prize, and a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle's John Leonard Award for Best First Book, along with many other honors. Raised in Spring Valley, New York, he now lives in the Bronx. Now, I was first introduced to Nana's work when a friend of mine recommended his short story collection, Friday Black, to me, and I was immediately impressed. The stories in that collection have a dark humor to them, the sort of satire that cuts to the bone, where absurdity comes full circle into cold reality, stories about the brutality of American racism, about the rabidness of consumerism, about violence of all kinds, stories that incorporate both speculative fiction and satire and that defy genre altogether. I was deeply struck by how keen the observation behind the stories was, so when I got the opportunity to read his debut novel, Chain Gang All-Stars, I jumped at the chance. In this new novel, we're presented with a near-future dystopian America, where the prison system is turned into a combination reality TV show and blood sport. Convicted prisoners known as links, as in links in a chain, are given the option of fighting to the death in televised gladiator matches, with the promise that if they survive long enough, they'll be set free. The book mainly follows a fighter named Loretta Thurwar, a tough survivor and laconic figure who is on the verge of reaching her freedom. We also get to see from a number of other perspectives, including Hurricane Stax, another fighter and Thurwar's lover, who espouses love while fighting. We see from the perspectives of activists, spectators, prisoners, and even the executives who run the Bloodsport program. And what really comes through in all of this is both a blistering critique of the American carceral system and the deep tenderness that Nana has towards his characters and their inalienable humanity. I was just blown away by this book, and I'm very happy to be able to share this conversation with you today. Before we get started, a couple of things. First, there are links in the show notes for you to purchase your own copies of Chain Gang All-Stars. Nana picked The Lit Bar in the Bronx as the local bookstore he wanted to highlight. There are also links to Mysterious Galaxy Bookstore here in San Diego and to bookshop.org. As always, though, I highly recommend purchasing from your own local independent bookstore. Also, a quick reminder that Keep the Channel Open is a labor of love and is entirely supported by listeners via our Patreon. 
If you enjoy today's conversation and find it meaningful and you have an extra buck or two to spare, I'd deeply appreciate it if you made a monthly pledge at patreon.com slash likewise media. For just $2 a month, you get access to our bonus audio archive, which includes readings from past guests, including Ada Limon, Luther Hughes, Matthew Salises, Kia Brown, and many more as well as interviews with the authors from my short fiction podcast, Likewise Fiction. I'm also currently working on some additional bonus audio that I hope to be announcing soon. So once again, that's patreon.com slash likewise media. All right, let's get started. Here's my conversation with Nana Kwame Ajay Brenya. Before I say anything else, I just wanted to say, I, I, I thought your book was amazing. Thank you. And I was really, really glad that I got the opportunity to read it. It's obviously one that has a lot of relevance to our world today, our political world today, but just as also a piece of literature, it is just an amazing book. And um, I think where I wanted to start with this was actually <laughs> before the book even starts is the the epigraph that you picked so you, yeah. you have an epigraph by kendrick lamar the line is i hope the universe love you today and that is from the song the art of peer pressure yeah I, i'm i'm kind of interested about like what it was about this that you that made you want to pick it because like so the song in general like the the story of the song is about kendrick being in this situation where he's not he's doing things that he feels like he wouldn't normally do because he's with his homies. Right. And, yeah. and some of those things are things that he's not really comfortable with. Yeah. And yet he ends up doing them anyway. But this one line in particular, I hope the universe love you today. If you take it out of context, it just sounds like kind of a benevolent thing to say, but in the context of the song, it's a lot darker, right? It has the threat of violence around it. Yeah. And I wanted us to know what, what was it about this line from this song that made you want to pick this as the epigraph? First of all, thank you for that, like, sort of, like, background into looking it up the line. I really appreciate that. So when I, I – this is the second time I've chosen a Kendrick line. And um, before I even get into, like, the lyrics of it, I remember when the song came out, I was in school, when the album came out. And, you know, it was, like, an you know, instrumental – breakdown in the beginning mm. i don't know like in the beginning something like this instrumental breakdown which is like my favorite i don't know it's one of my favorite parts of the whole album and it just kind of sets this mood it just kind of sets the spirit in this kind of really interesting way that i really like it said everybody 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 that part <laughs> so it's just like i don't know it's like it's like setting you up to get told this story this guy arthur flowers one of my mentors like plays the mbira and like sometimes he'll do that to like set the mood. So there's already something about that song that made me feel like it's like an actual, it's a clear story being told, which I liked having at the beginning of my books. And then with the actual line, I think you kind of hit the uh, nail right on the head where it's, there is like hope of love, but in the context of this story in which there's like a bunch of violence and danger, but like, but it's sort of what they know and what they, and, and what uh, Kendrick and his friends sort of, is just their environment. And, you know, maybe he's a little bit, more sensitive and he's sort of feeling that like he doesn't necessarily uh want to do all the things uh that he ends up doing which again feels like very much in my mind kind of to this book where there's all these contexts where we're forced to sort of maybe not be exactly who we want to be but it's just what's in front of us so we follow along with it mm. and so that awareness 
of such a kind of personal perspective felt useful for me. And then also just how the universe led me today, that the bigness of that, the specificity of that, how it works out of context in this sort of simple way, but also in the context with the sort of double edge, both not threatening, but almost uh, there's like a sinisterness to it. It just felt really useful for the book because of course there are characters who are championing love, but are also feeling death at the same time. Mm. That sort of duality, you know, obviously in particular with the character stacks, you have, you know, her way of being in the world and her rhetoric that she uses when she's on camera is very much about love. But at the same time, she's having to do brutal things um, as part of this program. And that duality, I feel like there is that same duality running through the book in general of sort of juxtaposing the brutality of the system and the brutality of the world and then and yet the tenderness of the characters. There was something that I found really moving about the story. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. It's right at the heart of it again. Like this people were trying to be love, try to embody it even in the most loveless circumstances. <laughs> I was joking about this the other day, like not to like quote that song, like we found love in a loveless place, the kind of thing. But mm. But kind of, <laughs> yeah. you know, but I think we're all trying to do that because we live in so many different systemic models that really push us to privilege things like capital and sort of material gain above each other. Mm. And so um, I think these characters are sort of um, pushing back against that in their own ways. Yeah. So I wanted to actually back up a little bit outside the book. One of the things that you've been asked in other interviews, I know, is is um, whether or not you would consider this book to be satire. And I think, you know, that's that's obviously open for interpretation. For me personally, it doesn't operate quite in the, in the mode of satire. But going back to your first book, your story collection, Friday Black, many of the stories in that collection are, are very satirical. You know, I'm thinking particularly of like the, the sequence of, of retail-based stories that including the yeah. title story. Um, and yeah. the first story, the Finkelstein Five story is... It's satirical, but not, not funny. Um, yeah. And there's a few things that I, I was sort of thinking about with this. And the first just being that, you know, satire is one of the sort of modes of literature that I feel like has a, a more explicit function than other kinds of, uh, many other kinds of literature. I think that all art does something in the world. And I, a lot of times I'm, I find that question Mm. more interesting than like, what is art is more like, what does art do? And I think satire Mm. really, really puts that in the foreground. Um, and I'm, I'm just kind of curious when you're working in this mode, like what does that allow you to do as an author? Does that make sense? Yeah. Like working into like in the mode that is like perhaps satire or in the mode of, Yeah. There's so much to say about it because the satire question for me, it's also one, if you've seen in other interviews, I, I, I don't always know how to answer it because I think maybe, I also think I work in a lot of different modes at once, which is probably what people are identifying. Mm-hmm. Even though this book is a novel and the first book was a short story collection, I think part of my, I don't know, thing is the sort of flexibility between registers of modality. That sounds crazy to say. I don't like that. That sounds so <laughs> academic. 
I don't know. Like, I think when people hear satire, I think sometimes the reason why you, you and maybe even me as well might sometimes resist it is that satire seems to privilege humor, right? Hmm. And um, like the exaggeration aspect. And I think because of how I sort of straddle that line between hyperbole and understatement, sometimes satire feels false because what is representing the story sometimes is actually not so disparate from what it actually is. So I think that tension you're describing probably comes from something like that. At least it does for me anyways. Hmm. Um, but in terms of for why I like working in that realm at all, artistically, and I might as well th- throw speculative stuff into that pot because why not? I think it allows me a certain kind of pliability. I think it allows me to stretch and, and condense myself in ways that feel fun and inter- like entertaining to me, but also I don't feel like, um I don't feel bound, I guess. So, you know, so I think what you're working is if you're strictly in, realism let's say or, or strictly and not it's almost like you have a a circle peg and you have to just keep going to the circle peg but i feel like i work with a kind of play-doh where i just shape the part of the narrative i need to be whatever i want for the moment hmm. and again that's hard though because you have the reader has to feel that there are some rules something has to be in bounds there has to be an out of bounds so or else what are we really talking about that it's really hard if, the, if nothing matters if there's no rules at all it's really hard to create stakes which is very important at least for me to create narrative tension which is an energy that pushes a reader through the text so i think for me working in the satirical mode allows me to sometimes like laugh at the ridiculousness of the pain that our systems create but also sometimes cry at it which is how i like it to be because it it, it gives me power mm. i guess and um, it also allows me the power, the ability to be um, very specific, but also difficult to reduce. That is to say, like, if I were to work particularly in exclusively realism and talk about some specific prison, it could be understood perhaps that I was speaking, condemning like a warden or, or a couple of people as opposed to like this system at large. Mm. And so um, I think that the satire gives me the power to be to be uh, broad uh, difficult to reduce, but also I can, if I choose to be, I can be very specific and also it's pliable. It's stretchy. I can, I can, that's maybe really malleable, which I feel it fits my style, which from even my first book until now, if I do have a style, I think part of what it is is that I have the ability or willingness to employ many styles, so to speak. I mean, I do feel though that like stylistically, even just through the collection of your, you know, your first book, there are a lot of different kinds of stories, but there is a through line and there, and I feel like that runs into chain gang all-stars as well. One thing I was thinking about in particular is that, you know, satire is always a criticism. Like it, it always has this sort of critical lens that it's turning on whatever it is that's being satirized. I mean, the one that most of us have to read in high school or whatever, right, is um, Gulliver's Travels. We read Jonathan Swift um, or like um, A Modest Proposal. And there is this sense when you read a a satire like that, it's like I'm making fun of this thing in in order to try and take it down a peg mixed with an actual social critique, right? But it comes from this place of not just moral superiority, but like intellectual superiority as well. And one of the things that I found so interesting about the stories in Friday Black, and I think that this carries into Chain Gang All-Stars as well, is that the satire seems to me to be working on a more emotional level. And there is this feeling of almost like exhaustedness. Yeah. Or perhaps like, I don't want to say exactly like a wounded quality, but it's like, 
I feel like when people who come from a marginalized community and are used to experiencing certain forms of oppression on a daily basis, that like, you know, satire is such a heightened mode of literature. And in, in some of these stories, and also in Chain Gang All-Stars, there is this feeling of like, God, like, this is all I can do kind of thing. And does that kind of make sense? Totally does. We should like, we should coin a term like fat boy satire or something. Um, <laughs> I know exactly what you're saying. And I, I think that's another quality that I had exactly like I did maybe specifically directly, even though I've talked about a lot about why sometimes satire feels not as precise as it could be, is that sort of intellectual or moral superiority piece. And not to say I don't love things like Animal Farm or whatever. They're doing important work. But I, I think that uh, very, very often, another if there's hallmarks that I can identify or things that I try to almost strive for at this point because I've recognized the pattern is uh, my work will implicate myself, like me, if I can. Um, and that's not always obvious to the reader per se, but like that is to say the protagonist or like there is no like sort of clean-handed person who's just looking down on everyone. Mm. Um, that pamphlet thing, that criticizing you and not myself to me it's very reductive and uh and never all the way true in my first book the titular story i always make the joke that i learned the word titular at a conference so now i use it a lot to sound smarter <laughs> friday black so the whole story is about a world where on black friday everyone just, just becomes like these zombies they're killing each other for jeans and jackets and whatnot and they all they speak in this like zombie code like, of grunts and howls and that kind of thing that the protagonist can understand. Towards the end of the story, though, one of the people who works in the store quits because he can't, he doesn't like the chaos and violence of it. And the narrator sort of like grumbles something towards him about like, wow, you're weak or whatever. And the narrator, and then the other character tells the protagonist, like, don't worry, bro. Like your mom loves you, even if you don't get her a jacket. And in that moment, the, the protagonist is implicated as also being infected with the Friday Black. He is also just by a different grade, maybe his infection is not as deep, but he's still doing something he doesn't want to do and sort of conflating material goods with love and thinks that and believes that his only way to express that uh, love he feels is through the acquisition of some material good. And so that moment is really key to me. And for a long time, that story didn't feel like it was working because I didn't have that moment. And uh, so and I, I had this like almost epiphany with that within the revision of that story. Again, it took me years to revise that story, if you can believe that, because that, that moment now seems so obvious to me. But yeah, that feels really, really key. And it's it's sad because we're all on this thing. And I'm never I'm never trying to be like, oh, look how stupid y'all are. Or look how stupid anyone is or, or heartless or unkind. I'm like, we are all infected with the Friday Black. Mm. We're all infected with the loveless, but we can do something about it as well. And so that uh, weariness is also, for me, it's like sometimes just how unwilling we are to like accept that feels like tiring to me. And also just how it's so tricky, how delighted we might be by our own egos that are really not really changing the paradigm, but really just pushing us like, you know, like you might feel like you're successful because you got more money, but you're, you're still playing the same loveless game and that's really hard as you start to see that when you uh, wish you want to do better, you're trying to do better, but you feel like you're still stuck in these same models. Mm. Another thing for me with this. That was a really good question also, by the way. <laughs> Thank you. I do my best. Um, so 
you know, I'm not going to just talk about genre the whole time, but there was another sort of genre-ish thing that I was thinking about. And and actually, you know, just in general, genre is something that I find really interesting because I feel like um, at root genre is sort of a conversation between between books and the world and, mm-hmm. you know, books with each other. Um, but so I think that it's probably fair to say that Chain Gang All-Stars, as well as many of the stories in Friday Black, have a, a dystopian quality to them. Yeah. And dystopia is something that I find really interesting as a genre. Um, obviously, like dystopia is very popular as like a YA genre. And, you know, again, we, we've also like when I was in high school, I had to read Alas Babylon. You know, it's a, you know, post-nuclear war kind of thing. And I feel like dystopia is a genre that is always very much about the anxieties that we're living through in our present moment. So looking at the focus of like, what is the dystopian aspect of a story is always sort of an interesting exercise in looking at the time that the work was generated in. Yeah, I wanted to, but so I wanted to sort of, you know, ask you like how you think about these things and like what, again, like, you know, I asked you how, what satire allows you to do as an author and what is, what is working in dystopian fiction allow you to do as an author? Yeah. I think that this topic, which again, is something like, I don't choose it per se. I don't, and I really like how you characterize genre conversation between books. It's a, it's, it's a conversation between creators of their, in their times. It's homage, paying homage, and also trying to push a conversation a little bit further. I think about in the context of like video games a lot. You need Metroid Prime. I mean, not Metroid Prime, Metroid and um, Castlevania. Now Metroidvania is like a thing mm. because game developers have designed, have decided like this format is really rich with potential. And it also has um, fundamentally because of now the ability to create um, on uh, independent level games. Like it also is like within our ability to create without the, huge studios, but, but still create great depth. So anyways, like there's so much interesting about when genres grow and we are created and when, and when our genre was created, because it, it's like this kind of consensus model where we all notice this. And then again, eventually it's like, okay, well, we're, there's something similar between these things. These people seem to be in conversation and we can usually like point to time and be like, okay, there's something in the zeitgeist. There's anxiety about X, Y, and Z, especially post I did an event in Winston-Salem and I was with a historian and I, he was talking about postmodern. I said, hold on, just explain to us all what postmodern actually means once and for all. (laughs) (laughs) And a lot of it had to do with the ability, the post-nuclear like stuff to like the ability to like obliterate ourselves, like truly for sure, you know, Mm. and the anxiety that comes with that. And so that's all to say, I think that working in dystopia is (laughs) <laughs> in this as a dystopic sad boy satirist um <laughs> no working in dystopia is useful for me because i get to say like these stakes are pretty high <laughs> we're already and also again because of the way the nature of my dystopia my dystopias is there's always like a dystopia narrow quality mm. that like we're already here if dystopia means like if i like super i view i view it as like large-scale unnecessary suffering being administered somewhat systematically without people's control or like where there's infrastructure for suffering that is undue and massive. I I think we're there right now. Yeah. And of course, obviously, many of us live in great privileges, including myself, but it's also important not to ignore like just how much death is everywhere around us. And so to me, working in dystopia is just my way of being like, 
you can't see what I'm doing, but I'm like gesturing like through my hands, like, look at this. There's a lot of corpses. Yeah. And we put like a Gucci belt. We threw a Gucci, like, like a nice Gucci sheet over it. And the, the stop is kind of like me trying to tug at that that linen or whatever, just pull it away, just to like remind us, hey, there's tons of corpses and they've, they've, that, that pile is growing every day and eventually it's going to crush us all. But in like a fun way though. <laughs> Um, it is the thing about, you know, this, this book in particular, that is that, that it, it really doesn't seem like that much of a stretch, right? Yes. I'm reminded of, there's this TikTok account that I see from time to time. The screen name of it is America is the bad place. And, and I just, that, that was sort of one of the things I was thinking about as I was reading this book is just, it really it seems very plausible right down to the arguments that people have over whether or not turning prisoners into gladiators is an ethical thing to do. Um, you can see the exact same, like you can imagine people having these exact arguments on Twitter right now. (laughs) The only, so like when you, when you talk about the nature of the satire or whatever, I think another aspect of it is, cause again, I'm interested in in this conversation because genre, I feel like, quote unquote literary world doesn't really know what to do with me sometimes in mm. terms of like where to place me. Yeah. Mostly because of weird elitist attitudes towards quote unquote literary fiction as opposed to quote unquote genre fiction, which are all just illusions anyways. And or like tools to help us understand things, but are not really anything ironclad in my opinion. But um in terms of the satire piece or like uh the nature of how close we are to this world, I appreciate that reading because usually I'm Usually I'm not altering too many things. And I think so like, so if even in Friday Black, what I'm altering mostly is the intensity. Like I'm, I'm making the intensity uh, unencumbered, but people have really trampled each other for jeans, for example. In the Fickle Steam 5, I'm changing the, a weapon type as a gun. Instead of a gun, it's a chainsaw, but it feels like I pushed it way into the satirical. And I'm also, of course, I'm changing some of the niceties and euphemism around the thing, but the content per se is not that different. Kids are getting killed by some guy and that guy is going to go free for it. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, and that's, or won't, nothing will happen to him in the case of chain gang all-stars. The, to me, the only, the real conceit is that the prison industrial complex no longer relies on its Trump card, which is the way it uh, is um, hidden behind a wall. Mm. It doesn't, it's not relying on the secrecy of its violence anymore. It's decided that, We've been desensitized enough that the violence that we all know is happening but get to feel okay about because we don't have to see it every day is uh, no longer, like, that's no longer necessary. That's really it. Because fundamentally, the idea that the government can, I mean, of course, there, there are other pieces probably, but, like, in terms of just, like, what is happening, the government, they've quartered people, they've hung people, they've... I don't think we ever had the guillotine in America per se, but we, they've, uh, we've um, electrocuted people. Now we have lethal injection and all the things I've named a little bit before we were doing whatever we're doing at the current time, the thing before was fine. And then afterwards it was viewed as barbaric. Yeah. That is to say now to hang someone would be crazy. A firing squad is horrible. All things we've done at one point were great <laughs> or thumbs up. Because we we have this attitude about like the sort of packaging is what is the issue and not the fact of killing. Yeah. And so, yeah, so like the reason why I think it sometimes feels close, even though it is also very 
what's disparate what's disparate is okay once i change that main conceit of the the on the willingness of the prison industrial complex to not be so hidden then i build really up on that conceit now so now i'm like okay they build a whole sport around their willingness to show their violence side in that sort of angle there's a lot of development but the actual paradigms I'm sort of suggesting changing are not really much. It's, it's not like the moral ethical part has changed. What's really changed is the willingness to be to have it be seen. And that's like sort of like, that's different. Because I think that the conceit people would, would probably identify is that, oh, people are being killed by the government in this like crazy way. But I'm like, no, people are being killed by the government. That's not even getting to the extrajudicial murder of people by police. So that's, again, I think like those those kind of decisions and then and then everything else I keep more or less the same. I try to keep everything else like close enough. You know, I'm not actively changing. again, I'll if I create I'll create um technological advances to support this blood sport I've created, which again hinges on the prison industrials complex's decision to be willing to show this violence. But other than that, there isn't much change. And so that that to me that's how um something can feel so far out but also very close to home. Yeah. I, I mean, don't know if that made sense or not. Oh, it definitely did. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I think about one of the things that that was so plausible about it is that I think so much of our entertainment now does rely on a certain amount of voyeurism and also of sort of ritualized violence, whether that might be something like football or MMA. Yeah. And then reality television. I feel like all of these things are in there. This this question of violence as entertainment one of the things that was really interesting to me about this book is, and, and you've talked about this in other, other interviews too, that you pay a lot of attention to choreographing and writing the action scenes as yeah. really compelling action scenes like you would see in, you know, like in a science fiction or high fantasy novel. Um, we're used yeah. to seeing battle scenes. We might even be used to seeing actual gladiator scenes, right? Like the movie Gladiator. Yeah, right. So the, these action scenes are very compelling. They're completely engrossing. And the way that this implicates the reader is really interesting to me. The narrative spell of this, of I mean, the spell of narrative in general is very seductive and it's hard to overcome. Um, a while back, yeah. I had this conversation with um, a professor from UCLA named Anahid Nersessian. We were talking about poetry. We were talking about John Keats's poem, To Autumn. She has this, this is going to be a little bit roundabout, but uh, trust me, I'm going to get somewhere with it. Um, no, I'm with it. She, she makes this argument that the, the poem, To Autumn, is this really beautiful poem that is in many ways trying to implicate the idea of the seduction of beauty, right? That like this mm. poem is actually about, because, you know, it was written in the aftermath of this massacre that happened of government troops firing on civilians in England at the time. And, and so, you know, he's making this poem that is really, really beautiful as a way of like implicating the beauty of poetry and the, the way that readers mm. interact with the beauty of poetry. But the problem is, is that when now we're looking at this from 200 years later, most people don't know what the Peterloo massacre was or know that it happened right before Keats wrote this poem. And all we see is a beautiful poem. Mm -hmm. And so, and so we, as the reader mm. are just now we're lost in the thing that, that he's trying to implicate. I'm also thinking of a movie like Starship Troopers 
which is like really a critique and criticism of like American fascism. And yet a lot of people see that movie and totally miss that. They miss <laughs> that the, the main characters are literally supposed to look like Nazis and all they're yes. seeing is an action movie, right? So yes. you, 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 when you're writing things in this way where you are critiquing a, a mode of literature that we are used to as entertainment, you as the author have to do a lot of work to overcome yes. the fictive spell, right? So I wanted yes. to know, like, how do you how do you do that? It's such a again, such a really smart question. That's really close to like my one of the core intentionalities I had to like really think about in terms of this book. The professor that I was doing did that study with on on Keats was thinking that way. I, I I think the same way, and even in less high stakes contexts, in my first book, there's a story called um, the Hospital Where. And towards the end, the character's like almost like annoyed and like it's kind of meta. So the writing is starting to get like really like fiery and stupid as like his father's health is declining. He's sort of like, basically it's like, it's annoying to like try to turn something pretty out of like something shitty, you know? Mm -hmm. And in this, and that's not exactly the same, but it's like this thing we're always doing where we're, we're as artists, you're trying to make something like beauty. And how do you make sure, how do you put guardrails on How do you like make sure like the energy you've summoned is, going to stay attached to whatever you're creating um, or whatever you're trying to maybe dismantle even in my in my case there is a the fictive dream is very seductive i i i was shocked when i was listening to uh, somebody told me they watched the entire um squid game hmm. and zero critique of capitalism was in their mind as they watched it zero which feels almost impossible hmm. but in our world, because of what violence is and how seductive it is in our culture and how pervasive it is and how, especially in Western culture in America, the good guy and triumphant one is whoever like killed the most people. It's really tricky. The implication piece is really important to me. As I said earlier, to me, that is like almost again, like one of my hallmarks. And that's it's why some people think about my work feeling video game-ish because of um, the action, which I think is maybe true. But I also think that as a medium, different sort of, avenues have different powers at film we can represent action really well it's sometimes a little bit more difficult for pros to do but pros can represent interiority better than any medium maybe like like mind's eye thoughts that is to say our video games though implicate the reader or the player probably better than anyone any of any of these other mediums i just mentioned before because you are doing it yourself mm. and that's really important and to, and so I think, again, I think I have inspiration from all those mediums I mentioned, as well as music and photography, too. And I, I, I think about the implications of that because it can go really crazy. There, there is something to be said about this sort of non-judged, like, mass murderers that <laughs> you can be in whichever video game now, which is, and again, says as someone who loves games, but there's... There's something, there's, there's some conversation to be said about that. You go and play Red Dead and you just like get to murder everybody and there, you know, there's something there mm. worth talking about. And so um, in the case of my work, though, first off, I try to make the actual action scenes a conversation in, of some kind. I try to maintain the humanity of the people. They're not just killing machines, even as they're killing and I think the general point you're talking about, the sort of how do you like keep yourself from getting John Keats yeah, is um, and this book is why I had footnotes. Mm -hmm. I am not a footnote person, but I 
almost had to do exactly that, like break that fictive dream, which is for me a core tenet of my writing to never do that. I, 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 I've said this before as well, but I, re- I remember reading the John Gardner um, art of fiction, and that was like his big thing: never break the fictive dream, never break the fictive dream. But for me, it's like actually I got to because I don't want someone ten years from now, twenty years from now, or tomorrow to be like, look how cool this this scythe was, you know, mm. um, without the context of prison is a blight on the very idea of a humane civilization. The footnotes are definitely something that stand out about the book. Um, and in particular, I mean, you do use them in some points for sort of world building details, but the way that every time someone dies in these games, yeah, you give it's almost like a little eulogy. And as the yeah. story progresses, they become sort of less factual and more lyrical, especially yeah. towards the end. Yeah. And and you've talked also about how the <laughs> fact that their footnotes means that you literally have to move your eyes um, yeah. to, to break the fictive spell. Another thing that I was thinking about is one of the most interesting characters. So this book is very polyvocal, right? Like I went through and I yeah. counted, I counted at least 17 different points of view in the book. I mean, and wow. we, we're, <laughs> we're mostly following Thurwar, the, the main character Thurwar yeah. through the book, but we also get to, to hear from other links. Um, we get to yeah. hear from, from activists. We get to hear from like the van driver yeah. executives yeah. who are, you know, running the chain gang all-stars show the announcer. But the one that really struck me was that you have these characters, Will and Emily, who are mm. spectators, right? And in particular, Emily, because I feel like her her point of view is very much, at least like where I am as the, the reader, um, where yeah. she's skeptical about this. She doesn't feel good about it, but then she kind of gets sucked up into the the drama of it all. But then mm-hmm. stuff will happen and, you know, just watching her, her um, journey of becoming a fan of this sport was really interesting to me. I wanted to talk about how the way that you're using so many different voices in this, and most of them are third person, a few of them are first person. It's interesting, like even among the prisoners, like one of them that you, uh, you, you give us Gunny Puddles' point of view and he's like pretty explicitly racist and yeah. you're not a sympathetic character throughout the thing. You give us those executives who are working. So like not all of the people that you're giving us their voice are sympathetic characters. Some of them are actively working to create this world that we're in. And so I wanted to, I wanted to talk to you about like, would it, like, why did you want to include so many voices and so many different kinds of voices in this story? Again, it's a, a really well uh, sort of considered a framework for that question. Um, the the issue of like prison abolition or the issue of prisons rather is, is is super complex because it pulls on our general attitude towards morality. You know, it's like how do we handle people doing harm? How do we handle our fear? Which is one of our primary motivators. And so it required for me to like if I was going to do a novel because again I'm the kind of person if I can do it in a short story I absolutely will. <laughs> I um I think short stories like my soul form, mm. but I really couldn't. I really could not. And um, each of these perspectives, I hope, added something. 
And so um, I wanted to really like just get to how how many different ways people can view this thing, which again is I don't think most people would argue that prison is a, is humane and a, like like I think people I think it's I think most people would say it's inhumane but we need it or something, or they just become like eh it was there so whatever mm. indifference. So yeah, I wanted to capture all the different sort of ways that in my to at least my eye and obviously there's many more that we sort of allow this really uh, difficult thing to, or this really like terrible thing to persist. But you, you mentioned um, characters like Gunny Puddles and the Game Masters who are like the more obviously unsympathetic characters. Most of the people in this book that we spent any real time with have, done, have at least murdered someone. There's characters who are rapists, there's characters who are murderers. These are like the big things that we, that we hear when you even bring up prison abolition. Gunny Puddles is probably the worst of the worst in many ways because he's not even, he's unrepentant. And I think with him and the game masters, the sort of commissioners and bosses who allow this whole thing to thrive, it was important for me to kind of put my money where my mouth is, I guess, in terms of like the my more ethical attitude towards abolition and, and some of these ideas of that really sort of center compassion and grace. So I have this person who's unrepentant rapist, but he's a human. And I don't get to be like, well, you're unrepentant racist, so like you don't get to be a human anymore. No. The whole thing is that your humanity is non-negotiable. And once I look from that paradigm and then I kind of hold him, even him with love, I'm able to see that, you know what? He arrived here somehow. This human, just like every human, was a child at one point. And there were circumstances that forced him into, into this loveless context. And if I if I if I'm not willing to be a love view him with love, I will forget that. And it gets really harder to me to sort of backtrack and then even engage the systemic issue that got him to this place in the first place. So it's like the the abolition thing is it, it's it's about building infrastructures and it's about it's about adding things to really give us the ability to engage meaningfully uh, with the real social ills, which is uh, whether it's mental health crises, whether it's poverty, whether it's addiction, these things as well, but it also keeps us from doing the sort of bad math of this guy plus what he said equals screw him and that's it. Mm. It, it. It robs of our ability to have a nuanced appreciation of humans. And we have to have a nuanced appreciation of humans to even understand how the people who are causing the most harm got to be that way. And so for me, even though I'm not saying like this guy would be my best friend, <laughs> I have to like say, I don't like him, but he's a human still. Mm-hmm. And not only do I not like him, I, I strongly dislike him is the nicest way I could probably say it, but he's still a human. Again, like people's humanity is not negotiable and that feels really important. And even, and then even in the worst, the worst of it, which is like the game masters who represent like these like super rich, mega powerful, I can view them as being like so blinded by their own party line that they just go with them so, so fat off their own riches, so blinded by their self-proclaimed necessity. They, they do things that really kill all of us. But again, they're not, they don't think they're evil. I don't think anyone thinks they're evil or at least that's, I hope that's the case. Mm. It's um, it reminds me of a couple of things, like the fact that you've talked before in interviews about how in some ways the exercise of writing this book was sort of a way of testing your own commitment to the idea of prison abolition, which right. I thought was really interesting. It also reminds me of, you know, a while back, a thing that ta Coates 
said. Um, I remember, you know, uh, Tanakasi Coates is well known for being against the death penalty. And after the, the Charleston church shooting, he was asked, well, what about now? What about Dylan Roof? Would you support the death penalty mm-hmm. for, for him? And his answer, I thought, was something really interesting where he said, I think that if you're not against the death penalty in the worst, most difficult cases, then you're not actually against the death penalty. And there's something about... It's really true. Yeah, there's something about the way that you insist on the humanity of these characters that feels very much in line with that. You know what I mean? I I mean, I'm just... I, 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 I vaguely remember this happening. With Dylan Roof and I, and I, it's it's an easy example that people will kind of throw, especially at a black man for in particular, because I, I think I've had some version of that mentioned to me too. Mm. And I, as I think about the cruelty of that, because again, like I, I, I think people when people think about the death penalty, like it's it's, it's almost a type of, like a, a type of euphemism in itself. Death penalty, like you like you got you go to the death penalty box. No, it means. That the government has to have an infrastructure to murder people. Hmm. They have to acquire materials in our case, which some countries don't even want to sell to America anymore. To uh, it's a cocktail of materials that will first paralyze someone, and then uh, uh, basically uh, like stop their heart. They will suffer greatly just that we can't see because they'll be paralyzed. So the tra- the question is, should this person's horrific killing of black people does that make you feel more comfortable with the government having the infrastructure which we know for sure will be used in the most cases for minority communities anyways like empirically we know that to be true does that make you feel more comfortable with that infrastructure existing that's the real question they're trying to get to like a very simple base that guy hurt you hurt hurt you you should want to hurt him but uh like and again it's not as though like we don't all feel that sometimes but it's not our higher selves. There's something better than that. There's something realer than that. There's something much truer than that. And it's not like I'm saying something out of nowhere. Like all the religions that these same people who are saying this supposedly believe in agree anyways. But let's not even get into, I mean, that's a whole other can of, can of worms. But when you ask when the death penalty means <laughs> that you are advocating for the government to have a robust infrastructure to murder people. That's what it is. Is that some simple closure? No, it means that there has to be a robust infrastructure that's repeatable to murder humans. And I just don't think that that's something that should exist. Unless people think, do you think that killing Dylan Roof will like, somehow do anything to put a dent in the reality of racism? Maybe some people do. I do not. Yeah. yeah. This has been uh, an amazing, it was a really amazing book, and I'm I'm really grateful for this conversation we need to take a little break and we can come back and do the second segment awesome so for the second segment i always invite the guest to bring a topic of their own which could be whatever you'd like to talk about whatever happens to be on your mind so what would you like to talk about today all right so i said earlier i'm like in the middle of a book tour and i'm grateful today's today's sunday it today's is sunday yeah um <laughs> And um, the New York Times book review is out, and we made we're on the cover again. Congratulations! Which is awesome. Yeah, and but also what's also complicated is like just struggling on tour. Prior, I kind of have had an epiphany um, 
not epiphany, but I had a moment yesterday where I realized like just being exactly where I am, not worrying too much about the future is so important. But I, I guess, I guess my, what I'm thinking about is how basically like the, how to gracefully embrace success or the lack of success or whatever, and make your art um, and, and or even maybe more importantly, live your life outside of the context of always trying to strive for this next thing, you know? Mm. I'm, I'm interested in like how, and I mean, and I wonder how for like for you too, cause you, you obviously put a ton of effort into building this work you're doing, like how to stay engaged with the thing and what matters outside the context of sort of external validation, success and all these type of things. I'm really, that's where I'm like, that's just where my mind is right now. Mm. I mean, I think it's such an important question. It really gets to the question of why do we do the things that we do at all? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, no, you go ahead. <laughs> I, I just, you know, one of the things that I love about the, if you want to call it the medium of conversation is that it does really require you to be in the moment and it requires you to be listening and not just waiting for the, your turn to talk, you know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it requires me to be present um, when I'm talking with someone. Uh, I know not everybody does that, and whether they're in a, an interview or or just talking to people, a lot of people do just wait for their turn to talk. But there's something about that feeling of this is this is what I'm doing right now. I'm not doing anything else that is for me very important, and and to allow myself to be in the moment. You know, I I, yeah. I feel like you know as an art maker because I also you know I'm a photographer and and, and a writer as well. That's yeah, also something that I, I believe that I'm reaching for when I'm making the work. I'm not always successful in that. A lot of times I'll get a little too wrapped up in what I want the end product to be rather than just being in yes. the moment of creation. But yes. how, I mean, is that something that you feel as well? Absolutely. And I could tell you're a writer. I knew it. I, uh, I, I, I do. And I, I liked when I first got into photography, I really sort of loved it. Because, and now, now I, I've gone to the film thing. I'll ask you in a second what you shoot on. Because it ends up feeling really present moment. I can't even check. I can't even review it. You know, you take the picture. That moment happened and it's there. And I think it's cool that you are actively already thinking about how present it makes you feel to be in conversation. I've been wondering about, or I've been thinking about why it feels like such a grind to be on tour, but the events themselves are amazing. They feel really good. They've, I've been feeling great about them. The crowds have been nice or spectacular even. And it's for that same reason. When you're on stage, you are forced almost adrenally like, to be like completely there. Mm -hmm. I'm not thinking about my flight. I'm not thinking about I'm hungry. I'm not thinking. I'm thinking really closely about what I'm going to say and what people are going to say to me. And I'm listening hard. And I'm just really there. And you're in this kind of great place where you're not, you're not thought anymore. And not to get not to get too power of now, but I mean I don't mind getting too power of now either. But like <laughs> like you're 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 totally in the you're not in thought anymore. You're not in your in your mind. You're just kind of being, and that feels really great. And I've been saying and like I I know this to be like how I care about things. Like I know that part of what's cool about being a writer is in the act of doing it, you could be really present. But what's also really hard about being a writer. I think it's why so many, like there's like sort of the stereotype of writers being sort of extremely neurodivergent or whatever, <laughs> <laughs> is because uh, 
because of the nature of our work requires us to work with our mind and like write things down. And sometimes language is also the, the, the same way our mind is working. We identify with our mind a lot. Like we really, we identify with like the mind state, like our, I am my thoughts thing. And I think my first great like epiphany, I remember George told me like, you are not your thoughts. And that's really important for us to remember, but it can be hard for us to work in this context. For sure. I think when I think about the sort of publicity cycle, yeah. I, I, I do, I mean, on the one hand, of course, like if, if, and, and I'm sure this is how you feel too, like if, if you are a writer and your uh, publisher is really getting behind the work and like, you know, doing the sort of marketing to really push the work and get you out there in front of people. Like, of course, we're, we're going to be grateful for that because obviously not every writer gets that right. Um, yeah. But yeah. It doesn't really change the fact that, you know, as amazing as the feedback can be um, when, you know, and it and it feels good to be on a stage and to know that the people who are there are there to because they value something about uh, something that you've done and something that you've put in the world. That's a great right. feeling. And also just being able to have conversations with people, you know, it's a way of being present and it's a it's an enjoyable thing. But then you have what comes in between, right? And most of your life is going to be that in-between part, right? Whether it's, <laughs> yeah. you know, running to catch a flight first thing in the morning when you're on tour. And, you know, I mean, nobody really loves air travel, right? Um, and, right. Or, or even, you know, let's say, I mean, because I, I have a lot of friends who are writers who have done book tours, for example, and that you have that moment when the tour is done and now you're just back to your life, Right. And yeah, you know, it's not all going to be like, you know, uh, being on stage and being getting taken out mm -hmm. to dinner and all of that stuff. Right. Like you're eventually going to go back to your, your normal home, your normal life. And, uh, especially as a writer, a lot of the work that we do when we're writing, we're doing it by ourselves. I mean, some people might go out and work in a coffee shop, but you're still sort of mentally by yourself. Right. I think that mm -hmm. that is sort of like a, it really sharpens that that sense of like what why am i doing all of this and and yeah. and of the need to be able to take pleasure and find fulfillment in just the doing you know what i mean that's really it and i've been saying this but it's like sometimes you forget it so i got to say I've, I've been telling my students like the glory that's to be had in this writing thing but also in this art thing but also in this life thing is in this in the doing it's weird though, because it gets like in my heart, I am a competitive person mm. and I used to be very competitive and I, I don't feel competitive about writing, which is almost why I like it because I, I think the game or the goal is to save the world. And so we're all on the same team. It's like a team sport. I think about what do I care about most, but I, uh, what I, I guess what I have attached to, cause it isn't like sales or whatever. I know it's not those things, even though we've been lucky to do okay in that context which maybe I do care because maybe me even saying that qualified means I do care a little bit. And there's nothing I, wrong with that, right? <laughs> I mean, it's hard because like I, you almost like secretly start identifying with pieces that you thought you didn't care about at all. Like I do, like what I do care about is like my, my peers is um, respect. Hmm. I do care about smart, good, generous readers feeling like I'm doing something a lot. Like I care like a lot, a lot. <laughs> um, and I used to uh, be, obsessive about it and I am about being a writer in general and now that I'm 
I, I don't know. It's 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 weird how like the change can always move and how you're old. Like that's why like I feel like it's so important, as you said, to like attach to the doing. But also like what I'm even taking it further as is like really being intentional about remembering that this is a great moment. I'm doing something amazing, but there's no reason why my everyday life can't feel just as special as being on tour. Because to be honest, a lot of this tour period has been super brutal, but the events have been magical, like actually magical. But I can also like try to summon that presence while I'm doing regular stuff, not even just writing, but just like walking or something. Because just being there is something that is possible, you know, mm. or I think it's possible. I can cultivate it. But the other side, though, I guess is like, how how do I not? I I, I said, try not to be too power of now. I'm not going full power of now. Okay. Like it already is. I'm saying it's already happening. You know, like if you if you work harder for something and there's other people, obviously, in different contexts and you you are receiving accolades. Like I said, we're, we're in the paper today. It's a huge deal for writers on that cover. How do you like receive them gracefully, but not to start to identify with the fact that you have those things? Because it literally becomes how you ide- people identify you. Every time I go to an event, they'll be like, New York Times, bestseller, blah, blah, blah. You know what I'm saying? Mm. Like the challenge for all of us, I feel like is to, especially on the side of like who are like sort of doing the thing in the sort of weird consumer capitalist context well, <laughs> or finding success, maybe just the easiest way to say it. How do you embrace a success, but not over-identify with it because that over-identifying with it can cause problems too. Yeah. I think that somebody who makes work of the, the, the kind that you do is going to be very aware of the sort of social context of there being hierarchies in our culture. Yes. And I think that you, it's it's very obvious that your work is trying to push back against that concept of hierarchical social strata. Right. And and yet. <laughs> well, and, and yet. I mean, if we talk about the, the seduction of the fictive spell, I mean, the mm. culture that we live in, this dominant capitalist, white supremacist, uh, cis-heteropatriarchal culture that we yeah. live in is also very seductive. And because it is so pervasive, it is really hard to not get caught up in it. And it really requires, I think, a constant sort of vigilance to be not swept up in it, especially, I mean, it's easier to do that when you feel like an outsider, but once you start um, having a certain amount of success, then the establishment is sort of accepting you and it is, and then what do you do, you know? Exactly. Exactly. And how there's no way I could say I haven't been accepted at this point. Two times in a row, the Sunday review, you know, mm. like it's almost impossible to, because I am, I identify as like an outside, someone on the outside looking in. My first book was a short story collection that was like insane. Like I try my best to believe I, or I know I didn't sacrifice any of my intentionality in my work, but I've still been received pretty well. And I am grateful for that because it was something I wanted a lot, but it's also that weird seductive thing. I mean, I just, I think it just takes work and effort because I, I, I feel like I have recently had the experience of seeing, oh, I thought I didn't care about that at all, but maybe I do, you know, um, really, really quickly. I'm, uh, I can't believe I'm even talking about this, but I just feel like it's worth saying re- the real, re- real shit now. The first book I did, we did the New York, uh, the bestseller list right away, right? Mm. New York Times bestseller list, which is like obviously the one, but it was like trade paperbacks. So there's a whole bunch of complications, whatever. This time around, 
we made Washington Washington Post bestseller We made the indie bestseller list, which if I had to choose one, the indie one probably means the most to me because of like, <laughs> even, even me saying that it sounds cringe because like, yeah, I'm like a real blah, blah, blah for the indies. But I mean, I do believe it, but I do believe it, but it just sounds like cringe. But I, I mean it in my heart. The independent booksellers are to me the reason why my, I get to be an author in this context. I love them like sincerely. And every place across the country, they've shown so much love. But... For the last couple of years, I, when I come up to stay, they say New York Times bestselling author, not a Kwame J. Brunel. And for a lot of reasons, I think a couple of like, sort of like the super big, like, you know, like uh, James Patterson type people, uh, is her name Daniel Steele hmm. type people that came out that same week. So we didn't make the hardcover fiction bestseller list of New York Times. And if you would have asked me, I, like, I don't give a, I don't know what the cursing rules no, are. No worries. <laughs> no I would have been like, I don't give a fuck. Cause I don't care about that. I don't think about that. I think about like impact, you know, I think about like being an artist. Why would I think about like, it's no, no disrespect to like any particular person, but why would I be worried about people who don't even write their own books? A list that like features people who don't even write their own books. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like just, just to like, not be like specific, but like, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But I found myself feeling like, huh? I don't like this feeling. <laughs> like I found myself feeling like, oh, I guess I did care about that a little bit. Or I guess, and it's like this tricky thing because I didn't have to test it. You know what I mean? Because it was just happening. So I just thought, whatever. So that's, and maybe it's like crystallizing as I'm speaking to you right now. It was really important for me to have that experience. And again, I even put the qualifiers of we're still a bestseller, national bestseller, but we're not New York Times bestseller. Like, which means it does mean something to me, but I, I didn't have to interrogate it. So I think it's important for all of us to like check in however that might come. I think that you, the world gave me a check in. It's like, yeah, you said you didn't care, right? Here, so here you go. And I was like, oh, <laughs> I guess I do. Yeah. There's always this question, right? I mean, like, because, I mean, we have to make the work that we make for ourselves first. And that's what everybody, like every teacher, every book about art yeah. and writing is going to say, you have to satisfy yourself first. And I think a big part of the context is because you can't control how the world is going to receive it. But then what do you do when, when the world does receive it? Right. Yeah. But also just, I mean, there's a reason why we make work and we put it out into the world. Right. Because most of us, right. I mean, there are people who legitimately just, they write or they make visual art and then they just like put it in their garage, you know, or leave Mm -hmm. it on their hard drive. And they're satisfied with just having done that. Maybe they'll show it to like, their best friend or something. But, you know, when we're putting work out into the world, it's because we, on some level, we do want people and the world to interact with it. We're, we're trying to say something and we hope that message will be received. Maybe people will find something in the work that we didn't even know was there. And that can be a really amazing experience. We're not trying to just keep it in a drawer. We're trying to have it live in the world in some way. And in this society that we live in, it's very hard to separate that from things like sales numbers, Mm. because that is the main, that's the main sort of metric that you're given to say, people are interacting with this. It does live in the world. I think it's really hard because you have to wonder like, well, first of all, I don't think everybody does wonder. I think a lot of people are just like happy to, to take that metric and just run with it, you know, are just happy to be like, yes, I am a New York Times bestseller. Like, yes, that is my identity (laughs) now, you know, 
But yeah. for people who are trying to be more intentional about it, who are trying to, who are actually trying to say something with their work and are being mindful about how their work lives in the world, I think that, I mean, that is something that always is going to require some kind of a negotiation, whether or not you achieve the success. You know what I mean? Yeah, it really is. And um, it's just something I've been thinking about. And I'm glad to, I'm glad, I'm glad I even mentioned it. I, I, I'm surprised I did, but it's like, it's, it, it, it is going to be a negotiation. And I think if you're lucky enough to even have that conversation with yourself, it's like, it is probably important to try to, because if you would have actually, I would have said no, but then it changed. I was like, Oh, I guess it's not no. And that's important. Cause now I, I think it gave me an avenue to which, to which I can like remember that. Yeah. I do want my work to live in the world. And I also know for a fact it does. Like I, I, this, this tour has been like this greatest evidence possible that in a way that feels much more real than, you know what I mean? Any of those, like, like you just said something really important. M- many people, all they have is that metric, but I have a, I have my eyes, <laughs> you know, yesterday I was in Santa Fe. I don't know how many people in the room, but they was like incredible crowds, super engaged. They stood at the end. It was like, I was honored. And so I don't have to wonder, but you know, there's always like this, these thing. And that's why it's, it's 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 tricky because the same thing that can make you full can also make you feel empty if you allow it. And so um, I, I've just been thinking about, I think all of us as artists who are making things and putting things in the world have to sort of remember that and be gentle with ourselves, but also like hold that awareness pretty close because it, it gets tricky pretty quickly on both sides, whether your work is being engaged with or selling or whatever, or if it's not. Yeah. If it is both sides. Absolutely. So the last question I always, the question I like to end with is if there is a piece of art or literature or creativity in some form that you've experienced recently that meant something to you. Yes. Um, uh, my music that I've been listening to on, uh, running around has been a lot for me. Mm. Noise canceling headphones are probably my most important, like on, on the road. Yeah. Like item. I've actually realized it makes me less afraid of playing because, like, the, I, I didn't realize how much the sounds of like the of like you know, <laughs> like was like messing with me. But I just feel like she's really dope. There's an artist named uh, Kaja Bonet. Kaja Bonet. Okay. She has an album called The Visitor. Okay. And I think it's really beautiful. The songs, the titular song <laughs> in particular, and there's a song called Francisco. This is it's a it's a kind of old, it's from 2015. But it's Kaj Bonet, that's K-A-D-H-J-A Bonet. And there's a song called Francisco, which doesn't even have any words, just like this melodic thing. And I've been listening to it as I go into the clouds and sometimes as I land into cities. And it's kind of just been like resetting me in this nice way. It's just beautiful. Like it's sort of Neil's soul. She has a voice that just feels like full of heart. The lyrics are have depth. I've like been like searching the lyrics like in the read it. It's like really trying to get into them. I think it's beautiful, but also it's like the kind of thing that's like hitting me when I needed it, you know? Mm. So, um, yeah, Kaj Bonet, I think she's, I think she's really dope. Wonderful. Thank you so much for talking with me today. I really, I loved your book once again, and I really enjoyed our conversation. Okay. As I mentioned at the top of the episode, there are links in the show notes for you to purchase copies of Chain Gang All-Stars. I highly recommend checking it out. And that is our show editing and mixing on this episode is by me the music is by Poddington Bear and transcription help is by Shay Aguinaldo 
If you enjoyed today's conversation, please consider supporting the show by making a pledge to our Patreon campaign at patreon.com slash likewise media, or by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. There are links in the show notes for that, and you can find all of the show's contact info, transcripts, and show notes on our website at keepthechannelopen.com. That's all for now. We'll be back with a new episode soon, so do be sure to come back for that. And until then, remember, keep the channel open. Thank you.